0: Quick shout out to our sponsor, Canvas. You probably have seen Canvas somewhere. It's a desk lamp that holds your phone, so You can do overhead video and, and shoot your process or hold your phone and, and do video of yourself, what have you. Canvas is an incredible product. Like a freaking infomercial, the day that my canvas arrived was the same day that one of the cheap phone holding arm things that I had I busted like an infomercial, fumbling like I'm trying to move it, get it right, and it broke off. And that was the same day that my canvas uh, arrived, and man, I've had a few of those crappy phone holders. And this thing is just incredible product design. And I've just become obsessed with that kind of thing over the years. Everything has been thought of. It's beautiful. It works in an elegant way. I really think that it's worth the investment. If you're going to get one, use our link um, so that they know that you came from our show. That helps the show and we really appreciate it. Go to shopcanvas.co slash pep talk and go get yours today. creative journey it's easy to get lost but don't worry you'll lift off sometimes you just need
1: a creative pep talk
0: hey you're listening to the creative pep talk podcast i'm your host andy j pizza yeah. there's a lot of talk about depth when it comes to creative work but i don't know about you But for me, I feel like most creative work just isn't that deep. When I say most creative work, I'm talking about my own creative work and I'm talking about your creative work. Like Most creative work isn't this soul-to-soul connection that we talk about on this show or it doesn't feel like it is. And if you have ever felt like your work feels less like a soul connection and more just like surface-level stuff, they're like, it's cool, man, but you know... That your your heart wants to make work with more substance. You want to have deeper connections with the people that consume your work. This episode is for you because we're going to explore how to make deeper creative work no matter what kind of work you make. Even if it's not conceptual or philosophical, even if it is like just wonderfully decorative. I think even if it's just cool, man, like even that work, I think, can have real depth depending on how you think about it and how you approach it. And that's what we're going to tackle in today's episode. Let's go. Chapter one, recognize the gravity of the situation when it comes to Making creative work, I think it's a a powerful, uh, it's been a powerful experience for me to put myself in the seat of the consumer of the creative work. And just recognize the gravity of it, recognize what does it mean for a consumer to try something new. So I remember when I was starting out as a creator, it just felt so slow going to get anybody to actually give my art a chance. And even now, sometimes the pace in which I can get people to give my work a try just is so uh, painfully slow and incremental in terms of the growth of um, my audience or how many books you can sell or, or whatever. And I've been thinking a lot about this and thinking about why is it so hard to get people to try your work. You know, we have this expression like don't knock it before you try it. And yet we all knock stuff before we try it. Like, why do we do that? And I think it's because it's actually really risky to not just try something um, creative, but to really consider going on a deep dive or becoming an actual fan. And I think this is because We use creative work to build our identity. Like we build it as shorthand for who we are. And so a way we have to be careful with who we identify with in terms of the work that we love and what that says about us to ourselves, but also to the world out there uh, at large. And that makes sense because it's hard enough to know who you are without having to be able to articulate that and tell other people what that means or, or how to explain like this is who I am. It's just a lot easier to be like, I'm a fan of the band Waxahachie or I'm a big fan of the stand-up comedian James Acaster. Uh, and you can better believe that I vetted in my mind who I identified with publicly as a fan just now on this show because I know that it says something about me. And if I mention somebody on the show, even that I'm like, look, I don't co-sign their whole behavior. I'm going to give that kind of qualifier because who you're a fan of and what artists you let into your heart and who you identify with is a delicate thing. And I think a lot of us have probably learned that the hard way. You know, in my 20s, I, I was talking about this on a recent episode in my 20s, I was a big fan of Cosby, Bill Cosby, and I had even, I really had identified with this person and this creator. I had probably quoted them on, number, on a number of occasions, only to really regret being so irresponsible in my fandom, because I didn't even know the allegations that were against him at the time. And then when I came back and resurfaced, even just to the stuff that he outwardly admitted to all of a sudden, it wasn't just that those quotes and those creations that he made were hollow. I was out here quoting them and it made my words hollow and it had this negative effect on me. And so maybe that hasn't happened to you directly. It probably has at least happened in a smaller way where You had a favorite band that ended up being super lame and you have this like, you know, piece of your history where you're looking back and you're like, good Lord. I was just, you know, uh, (laughs) I don't even want to throw any bands out of the bus because it's just not nice. But, you know, bands you are ashamed of being super fans of now. Uh, Or worse, maybe you have it worse than me where you so deeply identified with some artist or creator that you maybe even tattooed your body with some kind of symbolism that is connected to that individual and they have a fall or they creatively just go off course and do some stuff that you just don't stand behind and all of a sudden you just have this massive regret for ever being so careless or mindless of letting that artist into your heart or letting that artist uh, build part of your identity. And so it makes sense that people that are potentially going to give your work a try, that they would knock it before they try it, that they would, you know, scrutinize the situation, get context, get the bigger picture before they go around sporting your thing. And I think it's helpful for me to remember, uh, remember that as a consumer of creative stuff, I'm really careful about that. And when I think of it that way, all of a sudden, it informs how I want to show up as an artist in the world with those people in that situation in mind. And so, when you're weighing up whether you want to go deep with an artist, whether you want to identify with them, you're going to kick the tires a bit because the artists we deeply identify with become part of our identity. They become a part of who we are. It's. Pretty heavy stuff like it's not just something to hang your hat on even it's not just something that you believe in it's your whole self that gets wrapped up in the creative work that you love. It's pretty it's pretty heavy stuff and a lot of us have to learn the hard way that art is a heavy thing and I had to learn the hard way myself hanging my identity on these things but also just art is literally heavy. Like the first two houses that I owned, (laughs) I was trying to put up uh, art in my house. They're just holes in the wall everywhere. They're just doing it, William Nilliam, you know, just just go whaley naily, just knocking those nails into the wall all over the place. Art comes crashing down. Just, you know, it took me a long time to figure out how to put one of those anchors in the wall. I'm finally, like, every time I do it now, I've kind of cracked it. I'm feeling very proud of myself. But art, art is heavy. You know what I'm saying? And so before you hang up something as heavy as art, of course, you're going to knock it before you try it. You're going to, you know, knock on it and make sure, like, is this thing hollow? Is there anything going on below the surface? Like, is it rotten back there? Uh, Is there anything behind this that is substantial enough to tap into so that it doesn't come crashing down? Because if the wall is hollow that you put the nail in, The worst thing that's going to happen is that the art is going to come crashing down. Maybe there's an irreparable hole in the drywall. It's not a good situation. Nobody wants that. You're going to knock it before you just try the nail anywhere, of course. But if you end up hanging yourself on an artist that is hollow that when that artist comes crashing down, it's going to take you with it. And it's not just going to leave an irreparable hole in the drywall. It's going to leave a irreparable hole in your soul or a big blotch on your arm from where you had the tattoo. Like when I show up to make stuff, I don't want to overthink it. I don't want to be too precious about it, but I do want to do it with some intention. Cause I want to honor the sacred space of like, if I'm putting this out there in the world, And asking someone to give it a shot I want to be a good steward Of what that means for them Because it's kind of a a sacred space And before I become a public super fan of a podcaster I'm going to knock it before I try it Oh, would you like to hear me tell a joke? (laughs) Yeah Yeah, we'd love to hear a joke from you Knock, knock Who's there? I'm going to scrutinize it. I'm going to see if I can critique it before I wear a band t-shirt. I'm going to try to knock it. I'm going to try to figure out like what's going on with this thing. What's the context? When was this made? You know, you hear a new song, you're going to be like, what, what year did they make this? What are the related artists? Like, you know, you might enjoy the song, but if you're going to dive deep enough to actually support this creator, you want to know that you want to know the full story because it's not, a laughing matter this is heavy stuff and if you're feeling like your art is maybe not heavy there's that word again heavy as you would like it to be maybe it feels featherweight or lacking in substance or depth or hollow and you know it's a problem or you just feel like it's a problem let's talk about why maybe you don't need to change who you are or even change who or or change what your art is but instead see and strengthen the weight and strengthen the connection between the deep person you already are and the depth that might be already hiding in your work. And if you will dig into it and tap into that, that you might just see that there is a substantial thing right below the surface that you can hang your whole practice on. And we've just kind of used that metaphor in every which direction at this point. but. Uh, you get it. Let's, let's keep going. Chapter two, you already have what you need. So when it comes to making deep work or being a deeper person so that your work can be deeper, I'm not saying that neither of those things are worth consideration. But I wonder sometimes if you know, if you don't know what you're looking for, you may be on a journey to find what you already have. And you see this in things like Wizard of Oz, right? Which we've talked about a few times on the show, how uh, story expert Brian McDonald talks about how you have that story of Wizard of Oz. It's not just the idea that there's no place like home, but that you already have everything you need. Dorothy has the ruby red slippers that can take her home from the beginning of the journey. The scarecrow has the brain so on and so forth. And so you have everything you need, but actually would we'll go further than how Brian McDonald categorizes that. Uh, I think Christopher Vogler in his book, the writer's journey maybe also goes into that same idea because a lot of that book is exploring the hero's journey through the lens of the wizard of Oz. Um, And uh, this theme of you have everything you need, it might even be a common interpretation of, of the Wizard of Oz. But I would take it a little bit further and say, not only do you have everything you need, but I feel like that kind of implies that the journey is, you don't need to go on the journey. When in fact, my takeaway is that the journey is about not finding something that you don't have, but really discovering what's already in your possession and that that is a journey in it of itself. And the creative journey I think is the same thing. It's not about finding something you lack. It's not about making deeper work. It's not about being a deeper person. It's about recognizing and, and understanding The depth in the stuff that you choose to make work about. It's a journey to find the depth that you already have. You know, I've been on this, you know, my, my introduction to the hero's journey probably came way by way of Carl Jung. Uh, I've always kind of resonated with his stuff. I think he was one of the first psychoanalysts and early psychology therapy kind of stuff and so of course we've come a long way we've we have a lot of research that tells us some stuff that kind of elaborates or dismantles some of his ideas but I still find him to be just an incredibly interesting person as a philosopher and as a as a concept creator or a creative in his own right and so I've been um, I've been kind of digging him for a long time, but then even more recently digging deeper into his work. And the further I go down that rabbit trail, the more I am aware of uh, just how deep we are as humans. You know, his work is all about what he calls the unconscious. Uh, I think it's the same thing that we call the subconscious, But he just talks a lot about how little we recognize the vastness of our own personal unconscious, how deep and wide and infinite it really is. And through the process of reading his book, A Man and His Symbols, which is um, probably the most quintessential of his books, uh, it's something that he was encouraged to write late in life to try to. Make his work a little bit more accessible and kind of summarize what he, what his work is all about in a way that regular folk like like me can understand. And uh, through this process of of reading, I think when I I think the idea of the subconscious or the unconscious is such an abstract notion, and he just brings it into reality in such a concrete way by an exercise of if I say to you who was your best friend in first grade uh, or your first year of school, depending on where you went to school in the world, you're probably going to come up with a name and you're going to say, oh, if, if you're me, you're going to say, oh, it was just kid, Matt. And Matt was only there for like three or four months in first grade. And then he had to move and I never saw him again. And instantly I'm pulling out of my unconscious feelings and experiences and names and I was talking to my wife, Sophie, about this and how your conscious mind kind of feels like a flashlight and you're just kind of stumbling around and whatever's in the light is what is consciously in your mind. Usually it's only a sentence at a time or an image at a time. And she said, yeah, it's kind of like you're in, in a massive attic. And there's just so much stuff in there. And you don't even aware, you're not even aware of how deep this thing goes because you're just only really paying attention to what's in that little flashlight, what's in that spotlight of your conscious mind. And so you don't need to be deeper. And in fact, I will go so far as to say like, you probably don't even need to have deeper work Like, I think the art is, the job of the art is to be kind of the face uh, on top of your face. It is the it is the actual surface, the surface. There's nothing wrong with surface level work in a way because that is what art is. If you break down the idea of the word surface, it really means like an additional face. And the additional face is just supposed to be designed in order to uh, represent you better. Than, than your actual face or or what you can do in kind of plain language as a human to explain yourself. It's supposed to be a projection. And um, and so what if that surface, what if the thing, what if when you drew a snake, Andy, because you thought snakes are cool, man. one of my favorite episode arts on this show that we've ever had was, uh, this, it, it was actually for the episode with Brian McDonald and I drew a snake and I was getting at the symbolism of, cla- of of camouflage because of some snakes have a camouflage pattern. And I was talking about how there's a quote that I discovered through Brian McDonald's work. A per, it's a Percival Wilde quote that says every art contains within it an even greater art like conceals a greater art. And so I was using the symbolism of snakes. But the reason I love that piece is just because snakes are cool, man. And so much of my creative practice for the first half of my illustration journey over the past 15 years was just drawing cool stuff. And I think I always felt this conflict of this is just not deep. Like it's just stuff that I think is cool, but I, Ran from making stuff with depth because I tried that in high school and you see that in art school with those creepy, weird art films that are just like, oh, my gosh, they thought. You know, we'll just put layer upon layer upon layer into this thing, and it's really going to shine, only to be like, this is a convoluted nightmare, fever dream. Um, And that's what a lot of my, like, high school art was like. You know, I remember trying to make something really, like, heavy, conceptual, and I drew this statue with his head cut off and he's holding his own head and he's got a sword. And then there's three identical versions of him in the background, all representing things that are there's, I mean, there's just so much going on here and guess what? I hated it. It was so ugly. (laughs) And so at some point you're just like, look, forget it. I'm not doing that. I'm just going to make stuff that's cool because it's more fun and I'm happier with the result. All the while, this kind of imposter syndrome, low-level imposter syndrome is kind of pulsing throughout your practice because you know that that there's nothing else going on there. And I think that that is the problem, that you quote-unquote know that there's nothing else going on there. And speaking of Carl Jung, one of the things that he talks about, one of his big things is dreams, dream work. And I've just become... Re-fascinated in dreams in my 30s here. Much more. I was really into like lucid dreaming and the and all that. Because I've always had weird dreams. Like back when I was in high school. And then I just kind of got. I was like look man. I got ki- kids to feed. Bills to pay. I don't have time to be in fantasy world. It just all is a bunch of mystical mumbo jumbo anyway. It's all you know whatever. But then I got. Way back into it because I'm pretty convinced that there are ways to uh, interpret these dreams. And it's actually really powerful because it gets at you in touch with your non judgmental, unconscious self of um, what's going on. It's a good picture of like, this is what's going on with you below the surface. And Carl Jung would say that the big reason why we don't get a lot from our dreams is because we don't interpret them. And the reason we don't interpret them is because we are convinced they don't make sense. And if you can entertain the idea that they actually make sense if you know how to engage with them, then you're going to find a wealth of information about what's going on in your unconscious. And there's a lot of depth and there's a lot of um, hidden secrets um, that are worth connecting to your conscious self. There's a lot of stuff in that attic. And the only way you're going to find it is if you believe that it's there. And the same goes for your creative work is that if the, o- the only way you're going to find the depth in your work is if you realize that you already have what you need. If you realize that there is no such thing as making a decision randomly there's no such thing as, "Oh, I put snakes in the work because snakes are cool." End of the conversation. Cool is a type of resonance within a depth. And in fact, cool is an interesting word because it kind of gets at the idea of the ineffable. You say something's cool when you're like, "I don't even know what how to describe what's good about it, but there's it's got something, right?" Shout out to our sponsor, our print partner and sponsor, Jack Prince. Uh, most of the most of paper product stuff that we do in our shop is with Jack Prince. They're here in Ohio. Um, we love all the great smelling. I always talk about the smell of the print. I just love, I love print. I, I think, you know, I'm primarily an artist that works in print. And, and Jack Prince has made my dreams come true. Uh, the, the last, literally, like when I was in college I used to every once in a while I would come across a piece of print material that was you know uncoated smelled delicious uh just I, I don't know just had this real tactile feel um that I just loved and it took me a long time to find a printer that could pull off what I was looking for the last calendar we did, which is unfortunately sold out, just has the quality that I've been dreaming of for 15 years. And I can thank Jack Prince for making my dreams come true. And uh, we are proud to partner with them, um, and they make great work. We've made booklets with them, prints with them, t-shirts with them, all kinds of stuff. Go check it out, j-a-k-p-r-i-n-t-s dot com, and uh, get your print needs met. And that resonance, it's saying that there's some level where, uh, like a dream, that it does make sense. And if you don't believe it, you're not going to dig into it. And you're never going to strengthen the connection between the depths of yourself and the depth that's already in your work. But if you treat it like Carl Jung would treat it, a dream, you can get curious about it. You can be like, okay, whatever's cool here. Whatever, whatever images and symbols and archetypes that I'm drawn to and, and put in my work, whether it's flowers, whether it's skulls, like whatever it is, there is going to be something there. And then even if, even so yeah, there's going to be something there, but then what if, if there's not something there, then as you pull the thread, you're going to all of a sudden start adding layers of meaning at least to the way that you approach it. You know I was having uh drinks with a group of friends a few weeks ago and I went over to their house and they were doing a puzzle and I just and the whole night we spent kind of waxing poetic about philosophy and religion and all that kind of stuff as you do if you're one of those annoying people that is drawn to talk about deep stuff and trippy stuff man um and I just commented on like I wonder if uh the fact that we're physically doing a puzzle is kind of Uh, unconsciously influencing us to puzzling over the great mysteries of, of life. And it doesn't really matter if there's any truth to it. When you attach meaning to a symbol, it automatically has more depth for you for the people sat there. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter if it's true. It's just the strengthening of the connection that changes the way that you approach it. And I think, uh, there's a resonance to that. And I think that, uh, you know, I think a lot about how illustration, which is a big part of my creative practice has a lot in common with acting. I'm always, I think actors are one of the biggest influences on me as an illustrator because their job is to make a text come to life, not unlike an illustrator does with a kids' book or um, with an article. and And what does that mean? And and sometimes illustration, when you're using the language of image, which is um, has a superficial quality, it's easy to uh, it's easy to disconnect from the fact that it really is the language of dreams. It's the language of your unconscious. It's the language of the deeper self. If you are willing to connect that. And I think the same is true for acting. And I recently saw this TikTok with Matthew McConaughey where he was talking about the fam- probably his most famous line um, in Dazed and Confused, where he says, All right, all right, all right.
1: All right, all right, all right.
0: Three words, same word. His f- most famous line is three words that are the same and on the surface basically mean nothing, right? And I was just kind of intrigued by how much substance was there for him, which is funny, but it's also really fascinating because for some reason that that line was cool, right? Like that line was resonant on a deeper level for a lot of people. It's why it's been parodied and, and quoted and, it's become a cultural like moment in a way that, that part of the movie. And I would, I get curious about like, is it because he approached it with so much depth and he goes on to talk about how he was listening to the doors and he's listening to this song with Jim Morrison. And he's like in character listening to this. Cause this is what the character in the movie would listen to. And there's a part in the doors album where uh, Jim Morrison says, all right, all right, all right, all right. He says it four times. And he's thinking about his character in Days to Confuse, and he's like, okay, f- f- all right, all right, all right, all right. Like, what? what are four things that I'm like – that I would feel that way about as a uh, as this character. And he's like, okay, partying, in uh, you know, my car rock and roll and then picking up chicks. Uh, and then, and, and he's got, he's already doing in that car three out of the four. And he sees this person he's trying to pick up and they're the fourth. All right. And so he says, all right, all right, all right. Cause he's got three of the four. And I thought, I don't know who's to say it's impossible to say whether that depth is why that thing caught on or why it felt the way that it did. But I feel pretty certain that when you uh, whether it actually imbues it with meaning or not, it changes the way that you approach it when you have a connection to the meaning. And so you'll hear acting coaches be like, look. You're not just in character when you're saying the lines, when the camera's rolling or when you're on stage, what you're thinking needs to be in character. And it's a type of depth that is the stud behind the wall. It is the substantial thing that the audience can hang their hat on as you're doing your performance. And so in in my point of view, rather than going into your creative work certain that uh, there is no depth in it right now and you need to deepen it or or you there is no depth to you cuz you're just a midwesterner who liked who really loved uh, Jim Carrey and Chris Farley as a kid like um I'm looking in the <laughs> in the mirror here um and you're certain like you could you know The art world you have nothing to bring to it because you're just a simple guy um that those assumptions are going to be the same assumptions that cause you not to uncover the depth and strengthen the depth and strengthen the connection between the deep stuff that's already in your work with the deep stuff that's already within you and if you will treat it like uh, Dorothy and Wizard of Oz and take the journey, believing that you're going to find something, even if it's something that you already have, that you're going to, f- that your, your work is going to feel more substantial and you're going to approach it with more love and care and intention and and direction. And you're going to be like Jay from men in, men in black. You're going to be like Will Smith who finds out that the whole universe was on the the collar of the cat, the whole time you were looking for something you had the whole time, but it doesn't mean you don't need to look for it. I think, um, having a sense of it is really essential. And so let's talk about how to put some of those layers into your creative work, uh, on purpose. Chapter three, the call to adventure is to bulk up. It's time to bulk up your creative practice. You've been sat there on the scale like a little skinny kid in middle school being like, I got to bulk up, man. And what are you going to do? You're going to, you got to go drink some milkshakes, liquefy some ice cream and get that fat intake up. And here's, here's what I'm talking about in relationship to your creative practice. So, You need layers. You need multiple layers and levels to your creative practice. One of the ways that your work ends up being hollow is, you know, most people early on as they're creating, their work is just kind of a bad version of their hero's work. You know, it's easy to do that. You're really excited about that creative work, but you don't want to stay there. It's it's, It's not a bad place for the creative journey to start. Actually, I had a lot of students that I I thought, uh, you know, their work is a little bit too close to somebody else's. But often that kind of passion and that clarity of taste, as long as they don't stay in that place, can end up really being an incredible asset. Like usually that that doesn't have to be a terrible place to start, but it's too thin. It's too thin for you to ask anyone to hang their hat, let alone their whole identity on, or or a part of their identity on your creative work. And so what do you do? You need multiple layers. In the past, we've talked about how, your uh, p- part of adding layers to your work is by diversifying your creative diet. And you can think about it kind of like a creative food pyramid. Now, I know that there's a bunch of controversy from back in the day, the whole wheat industry making the bottom of the <laughs> food pyramid wheat was a scam. Like, you, why do you think we all have a carb problem, FDA? But just roll with me, okay? Uh, no one, there's no... Big wheat paying me to uh, fudge the numbers here on our creative food pyramid. And uh, it's not an official pyramid you can make your own. But here's how I think about it. I think about it like a food pyramid at the bottom, across the bottom. The whole bottom of that pyramid is real life. You know, uh, the best way to make your work less hollow is to, you know, mine your life for Creative seeds um, for the work that you make. You know, if you can be observant about what kind of things come up in your life and create from those things, that is the best way to make it less hollow. You know, uh, Matthew McConaughey, like, what piece, like you've heard actors say it before, like, what piece of themselves do they see in this character? And really that that's the foundation of the whole creative food pyramid. uh, um, Your creative diet is making sure that you are being present in your life in in some respect. And uh, and so that's a huge deal. But there's there's a bunch of other pieces to it. You know, the next next layer is two pieces of other mediums and acquired tastes. This is like a foundational aspect of making sure that your work has some substance is you need to pull from other mediums. Like I was talking about earlier, where as an illustrator, I will pull inspiration from acting and I will pull from uh, photography. I remember when I was teaching one of my students there, they had a whole mood board on Pinterest and they were an illustrator, but it was all photography and it wasn't reference stuff. It was literally like, this is the mood that I'd like to capture. And I've done that for pl- with playlists of other mediums being inspired by, for this picture book, I want it to feel, I want it to look like that song sounds. And that that gives you some diversification that really can be, you, you can pull more directly when you're making that kind of synesthetic leap. And so other mediums and then acquired tastes. So acquired tastes are, it's about openness to experience which is what a lot of neuroscientists say is the key to being creative is being open-minded. That's the number one quality that they find in creative people and openness to experience is how you end up acquiring tastes that on first taste didn't taste so tasty. Um, (laughs) Uh, that those things are the things that grow you and open your mind and widen your practice. And so I think it's really important to, to do that. It's been really important to me to when something intrigues me, maybe even something disturbs me, like if it does anything to me, then, uh, I, I'm going to lean in. I'm going to try to figure out like what's going on there to a degree, uh, within reason. Right. So there's acquired taste. The next level up is you have old stuff and new stuff. So you have old stuff, and this is kind of like I'm thinking about as you're trying to figure out where the stud in the wall is, where where to hang your work, if if you will, just to use that metaphor in one other way. Uh, one way you can find a stud is it's usually so many feet from the wall, or from the uh, the corner, because the corner is always where a stud is, and if you go so many feet in, uh, you're gonna find a stud there. That's one way to find it. And if there's a stud there, there's one so many feet from that. And it's giving you a context within this wall with where you're at. And the same goes for creative work. When you when you find a new song, one of the first questions I ask is, when did this come out? Like if if this sounds really fresh and really cool, um, there are times when if it came out five years ago, that's kind of less interesting. Then there's other times where you're like, whoa, this person was like onto something way before the rest of um, folks. Or if you're like, there's times when I go find it and the most interesting time that could have been created was 50 years ago. And then there are other times where that makes it feel irrelevant to me. And I I don't know exactly what it is, but their time is an aspect when it comes to making your creative work being timely and timeless. I think that sweet spot, that's, that's, good taste right there that's one of my kind of definitions working definitions of how i think about it and so that next layer the third layer up you have new stuff that you're inspired by that's your peers it's really important to to not stay up to date with what's going on in your neck of the woods creatively because you have to but more like give yourself permission to still love the work of other people i think that's just really important to stay engaged and interested. And it's a, it's a part of my practice. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. As long as it's balanced with uh, all the other pieces of all the other layers of that creative food pyramid and balanced with the other side of that, which is the timeless aspect. What are the old things that you're inspired from and pulling from, you know, you'll hear people like Ryan Johnson, uh, who I'm a a, a pretty big fan of who made knives out Uh, and glass onion, you know, when he's making these, he's pulling from Columbo, he's pulling from, uh, mysteries that did it right. And he, and he's like unashamed saying like, you know, the only thing he did to update the flavors was put iPhones in it and put it in a modern context or what, whatever it is. And so I, I'm a big believer in mining the past for some, uh, breadcrumbs that we just, just left behind and, and finding that context. And at the top, one of the most important parts of the food pyramid is the fatty guilty pleasures. And for me, the reason why they're so important is because guilty pleasures, I'm not saying that you should, I don't think most creators really feel guilty about any of the stuff they like. I know that that's not a, that kind of guilt complex is not very 2023. Um, but you know, we all know the stuff that, resonates on a deep level, even though we wish it was a little bit, you know, it's not the thing that we would really love to have on our Spotify wrapped as number one. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like we all have those things, but those are some of the most powerful and interesting parts of the pyramid because they, if something resonates, even though you'd you'd try your hardest for it not to, uh, that's telling you something very specific and very unique about your particular taste, Uh, something that's undeniable about your sensitivity and that depth of reception. If you have a lot of taste buds on that sweet side of the palate, uh, that's going to, that reception is the same thing that is going to allow you to taste your own work and navigate through the creative process. That reception is Um, the tool in which you can uh, recreate work you love and then critique it and make it even better and put your spin on it. And that's the point of this whole journey. Now, I'm gonna share a little clip from a conversation I had with uh, Alan, who does all the music from Terrestrials. And that music is hilarious and crazy and and over the top. I told you about Terrestrials last episode. It is Lulu Miller's new show. She's co host a radio lab. This is kind of a radio lab for all ages. Kids will love it, but I have listened to it on my own uh, it's designed to be uh, all ages. And so it's not just kid stuff. It, it it moves me. It makes me laugh. It's fun. If you like this show and you, um, because it's a bit playful, you're going to like this, um, this podcast. And, it's also a good other medium to get influence from if you're not a podcaster. So go check it out. But I, I had a conversation with the guy who makes all the music because the music is so creative and so funny and weird. Um, they do a lot of like parody stuff. And I was really intrigued when I heard that they pulled from Creed, influence from Creed and and what that's all about. And I think uh, his process with that really hints at the kind of openness to experience with acquired tastes and guilty pleasures that we're talking about here. So here's that clip. Can you tell me a bit about like taking inspiration from weird places and and trying to like things that maybe you don't naturally find yourself liking?
1: Right, yeah, that's that's what the whole Creed joke boils down to there, is that (laughs) I have made it a point in my intake of, you know, music or art, you know, at least in my best moments or my better moments to try to approach everything from a place of trying to find the, like the, the good, the, the, the radness, the awesomeness that exists in a piece of artwork. Even if I don't quite like the artwork, I I don't want to like over overstate this like this is some sort of meditative practice or some sort of you know thing that I've perfected or that I'm good at but I find myself lately just trying to walk into places where people are showing art or or presenting something that that they have been especially things that are not pretentious or the things that uh that involve some level of vulnerability and not be overcritical be like approach things from a place of what is awesome about this? Like, what are the cool things about this? I, this is not a song that I appreciate in its entirety necessarily, but I'm certain if I try, if I listen hard enough, I can probably pull something out of this that is interesting, or is inspiring, or original, or quirky, or you know, somehow useful in my creative practice or something along those lines. And and the, the example that I always come back to is, is, uh, is Creed. They, they're a band that they get so much hate. And a lot of that is so well-deserved. <laughs> uh, there's just some big egos in that band and <laughs> there's some real cheesy music videos and, and kind of embarrassing lyrics <laughs> and, it's yeah it's rough it it can be rough but i go through and i listen to it and, uh, and you know i listened to it re- recently um a decent pair of headphones and it's like wow the like the guitar tone on this record is fantastic and and it's just like like listening to how the drums like they're they're big and booming but they're not like over, they're not stepping on the guitar and, and the guitar, like every guitar lick is completely crisp and audible and, and so, and catchy. There's some catchy guitar licks. Like think about, you know, can you take me higher? That's like a great, that's just True. a catchy yeah, lick, man. It is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about like the guitar tone on, on that song. And you know, some of my favorite like late nineties I don't know, grungy records that, you know, that I like that I idolize, you know, have a similar sound to that. I'm just like, wow, uh, they're, they're really perfecting it on this record. It's fantastic. And, you know, then I come, then I come out of it. I zoom out and I'm back to thinking like, oh my gosh, like Scotty, Scott Stapp, like you got to chill out. You're you're a little too much. And, but, (laughs) but I started out, you know, with this open mind, I like listened to this piece of artwork with an open mind and uh and found something useful and you know then i could take that over to (laughs) some stupid song like 1800 little kisses and put on my butt rock voice and (laughs) and sing about octopuses (laughs) yeah i mean you you gotta think that like there must have been something good about matchbox 20 they like they rode the top 10 charts for a good while and you know recorded a you know rob thomas recorded that santana thing yeah not everyone gets to record with with carlos santana you know
0: (laughs) i think it's the biggest song of uh the 2000s i think it's the biggest selling song of smooth i think it's like yeah so i mean there's something what's going on here like what's going on yeah i love it (laughs) it's so good i love it so that's my that's the creative prompt i i would uh encourage people to do is go take something you know you hate something universally hated
1: yeah and that's then just yeah. go
0: spend some time with like it. I,
1: even one step far further like don't not not just something that you hate but like something that you're going to be embarrassed to 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 say that that's where you got the inspiration from like just yes. play around with that explore that see what's in there <laughs>
0: So that was Alan Gafinsky from the terrestrials podcast. Massive. Thanks for him taking the time out to have that conversation. And that's your call to adventure today. Can you go find a, can you go make a guilty pleasure? Can you go make, um, something you hate and acquired taste and acquire a new guilty pleasure? I think that that's such a cool exercise to work out the muscle of your openness um, and, uh, I thought it was such a great example of what it's like to add new layers and you're going to get, if you're willing to do that, you're going to get influences and find things that nobody else is going to find. And so I really appreciate that. Thanks Alan for doing that. Uh, don't forget to check out terrestrials wherever you listen to podcast. My favorite episode was the octopus one so far, um, it was just, uh, it's just so well done. And Lulu is such a riot and I just, I love all the stuff she makes. So go check it out. And um, yeah, so that's it. That's it for our creative sensibility series. Hope that it was helpful. Hopefully it was tasteful and that, that you enjoyed it. Um, a massive thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music and, and soundtrack. Thanks to Connor Jones for, sound design and uh, and editing the show thanks to ryan appleton katie chandler and sophie miller for podcast assistance and moral support of all kinds and until we speak again stay pepped up